0: Welcome back to the TV That Changed Me podcast, where I, Beth Watson, explore how TV shapes our lives, relationships and identity. This week, we're going to be talking about Sister Sister and the Golden Age of Black Sitcoms. Have you ever started re-watching a show that was a huge part of your childhood and then been disappointed to realise just how badly the show has aged? Definitely when Friends came on Netflix for the first time in 2014, a lot of people were surprised at just how homophobic a lot of the jokes in the show were. And definitely re-watching The O.C. I'm now taken aback by just how vapid all the female <laughs> characters are. But back in autumn 2020, the total opposite of this happened. A whole load of people started re-watching shows from their childhood and realised just how good those shows were. So this all started when Netflix decided to add a whole load of sitcoms with strong black leads to the platform. This included shows like Moesha, Girlfriends and Sister Sister. And a whole load of people started re-watching these shows and realising just how progressive it was that so many of them centred entirely around the lives of black women. And not only that, that so many of these shows had entirely black casts. Which is pretty amazing, considering that's still quite a rare thing for a TV show to have now. And one of the people who was re-watching Sister, Sister last year and having this realisation is our guest on the show today, journalist for The Independent, Misha Fraser Carroll. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking to her about her love for Sister, Sister and how it led her to take a deep dive into the racial history of the family sitcom in the United States. So I am Misha
1: Fraser Carroll. I'm a journalist working as a columnist at The Independent where I write on pop culture. The column is called State of the Arts. And I also do a lot of work on racial justice. Um, so I work part time at the Runnymede Trust, which is a racial equality think tank. And I do lots of other bits and bobs I'm, I'm about.
0: Um, and so today we're going to talk about Sister Sister, Um, the iconic show from the 90s and so I wanted my first thing I wanted to ask you was do you remember what was going on in your life when you first started watching Sister Sister
1: well in terms of what was going on in my life like I was like I think I must have been like six (laughs) so I think life life was quite a lot simpler Than it is now Um, And it was just those days Like I don't know Me and my siblings would like come home from school And my mum would like put us in front of Nickelodeon And we would basically just like Binge watch in probably a very Similar fashion to how I do now After work Um, and yeah, I think in my head, it, it comes alongside a lot of other shows like Keenan and Kel and like things like this that were um, primarily black casts, but also aimed at kids, which, yeah, there were like a few of them on Nickelodeon and stuff like that.
0: So you, in your article, for The Independent, wrote about Sister Sister and the kind of golden age of the black sitcom. Do you wanna just explain to people what was the golden age of the black sitcom?
1: Yeah, so the impetus for this piece basically came from um, Sister Sister, which was a sitcom about two identical twin sisters separated at birth um, who were black in the US. Um, That came back on Netflix And this is sort of, I think, a bit a part of like something that Netflix is doing in general, which is like adding a lot of really old kind of archive stuff during the pandemic because of like the limitations on what they can make right now. Um, But I was thinking back about that show and thinking about the Fresh Prince and like all of these different black sitcoms that were around when I was like, yeah, like say five or six, like in my early childhood. And I was like, that feels really strange to me because kind of my teenage and like young adult years feel quite characterized by like, you know, there've, there've been all these campaigns like Oscar's so white and things like this to try and get the media to diversify its representation. And I was like, isn't that actually really odd that there were all these all black shows Um that I had when I was a child. And like, I didn't think anything of it. So then for this piece, I basically tried to dig into why that was. Um, And this is something I'm increasingly trying to do, like not just talk about the social and cultural impacts of TV, but also kind of like um, in terms of money, or I guess a more kind of like anti-capitalist, like analysis of what's going on. Like, why does the content that we get, like, why does it get created? So I just did a deep dive basically um, into this phenomenon of the black sitcom boom, which generally like people think it kind of started with the Cosby show in 1984 um, and then continued throughout kind of like the late eighties to like the end of the nineties where there were just all of these shows. Like, I don't know if I can name them off the top of my head, but like, like I said, um, Sister, Sister, Keenan and Kel, The Fresh Prince, Living Single, um, girlfriends which kind of went into the mid noughties like just so many of these all black sitcoms um and it was really really fascinating
0: yeah and i, I that's something i've always uh, i've sort of come to realize as well that actually Shows in the 90s Both in I think also a little bit In representation of women Were actually Really increasingly Like telling stories That were diverse That were interesting They had all black casts, And then in the noughties This kind of disappeared And then, yeah. <laughs> and I think That maybe there was This kind of narrative In the noughties Of like Oh we're all so Politically correct now That actually we don't That we everything's solved And we can say Whatever we want And just hire all castes That are completely white In this kind of thing When I remember reflect on it that's kind of what the vibe sort of felt like would you agree with that yeah i
1: think i do and and i was thinking about this as well some of this stuff didn't make it into the the piece that i eventually wrote about it but like the political the kind of like neoliberal multiculturalist narratives that were going on at the same time like in the political sphere so the early noughties was this time where like there was a lot of i remember at my school around the same age when i was watching sister sister we had like multicultural days where we would all come in and like bring like a food and maybe like dress um like wear cultural dress um to kind of like celebrate our multicultural modern society sort of thing um And yeah, I feel like, well, it was the Blair years, like that was just a time where. I think we were encouraged to kind of celebrate how integrated and diverse everything was, which kind of counterintuitively and ironically often meant just like very white spaces with like these tokenistic um, people of color like peppered in. So I was looking at like some of the um, content that emerged in in the early noughties and kind of replaced, say, take the example of Keenan and Kel, feel like the replacement of that was sort of like Drake and Josh. I don't know if you ever mm. watched it. No, I
0: haven't. I think I watched one episode and hated it. <laughs> I, just, I just was so not into chicken, Josh. I didn't, but yes. so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually really loved that show when I
1: was a kid. But I was like watching it back and just like thinking about race and thinking about the fact that there was probably a sort of time where like Keenan and Kel was cancelled and there was a conversation or like people thinking about what what comes next to sort of fill that space and get the same sort of audience. Um, and Drake and Josh like has, for example, like Helen, um, who is a character who like works at the movie theater that Josh works at. Um, and she's like this very like archetypal, like sassy black woman who like doesn't have many lines beyond like, she gets like one word kind of like sassy lines. Um, and I was like, this is interesting because it feels like the, the black sitcom boom, you would have shows where they were all black casts and then shows where they were all white casts. And then you get to the noughties and you get these shows where they're basically just these tokenistic, um, kind of black characters. And you sort of, I don't know, it led me to think like, which is better. Like, I think sometimes, the idea of like a kind of like quote like segregated tv landscape seems like a bad thing but actually there was a lot more nuanced and in-depth representation of people of color offered by that landscape
0: that was what, uh, something i was going to ask actually because i guess the the instant pushback on oh should we have shows which are an all-black cast which are for black people and should we have shows which are an all-white cast for white people is oh is that segregating tv but it didn't segregate TV because everyone loved Fresh Prince and everyone Mm. loved Sister Sister. Like it didn't have that effect on people. It actually just kind of broadcasted black experiences to white people growing up, I think.
1: Mm, Yeah, I think you're really right. And although like a lot of the thesis of what I kind of came to through researching this was that like a lot of the black sitcoms were primarily kind of targeting black audiences, um, I had a lot of people respond to the piece white people saying I really love sister sister like I I have recently been binge watching The Fresh Prince like I love these shows too um which I think yeah kind of breaks down the idea that it's it's like solely segregated TV <laughs>
0: And I think another thing from that is what what do you think the impact is on... Because they are kids' shows, essentially, like Sister Sister is a kid's show, Keenan and Kel is a kid's show. What do you think the impact is on kind of like a young Black person growing up watching something that's got an all-Black cast compared to someone like Drake and Josh with like the one character? I mean, that's probably mm-hmm. an obvious question. But... No, yeah, I think
1: it's like a double-edged sword because sometimes I feel like we can get really bogged down in like conversations about representation being the most important thing in the world and like sometimes I think representation can be used in quite like negative ways but at the same time like you can't really dispute that as a kid seeing people who look like you on tv um is broadly like a very good thing and I remember when I was a child like I often I don't know if you saw I Oh, I think it's actually Disney Plus is bringing back um, the version of uh, Cinderella that has brandy in it and like Whitney Houston. Uh, And it's basically (laughs) like it's like black lead Cinderella. And I remember watching that as a kid and like often having these like very internalised kind of racist feelings of being like, why... Does my mum, because my mum was one of those parents who like wanted us to have like black Barbies and to watch black films and like black baby borns, like those little baby toys and stuff. And I remember having these feelings of being like, why does why do, do I always have to like have all of these things that are just geared at black people, which maybe was also my, like, we live in a multicultural society, like indoctrination showing, <laughs> but like looking back, I, I think that it must've been actually really important to me, like whether I understood it at the time or not. And like, yeah, just as I've got older and understood more about like feminism and anti-racism, I see what my mom was doing. Um, and I see like how important it was as I've been re re-watching Sister Sister, just seeing the kinds of storylines that you'd see in white sitcoms, but like translated to a black audience. Um, and they're not necessarily like the same sorts of storylines. Like I thought it was really interesting how in, say, Full House, it's like a really big sitcom that had Mary-Kate and Ashley in um, in the 80s. They often do these like very special episodes where they look at um, like topical sort of like after school specialty themes. Like they would be around like there's one where someone like falls off a horse and they talk about like horse riding and stuff like that. And there's another one where they're like, what is the true meaning of Christmas? And like these are their like big topics that they take <laughs> on. And I just think it's interesting to like, if you contrast that to the Fresh Prince, which also does these like, sort of, like, quite cheesy episodes where there's, like, a moral that you learn about. But in The Fresh Prince, like, their alternative is, like, there's an episode where Will, like, is confronted by police brutality and, like, discrimination by the police. Um, and I think there's an episode where someone gets shot and basically, like, these are the issues that were, like, of daily concern to a lot of young Black Americans. And yeah, it's, it's like, a very it's just much more real like the way that they take on those issues so yeah overall I think it, it like was a very positive thing
0: yeah and the other um episode you mentioned in your article which I just went back and watched because I've been re-watching Sister Sister 2 but I think I was only up to series or something um mm. and then I went and watched the episode where they join a union because, of, yeah. because of, um do you want to explain about the union episode if you remember yeah
1: so that's that episode's just like wild because I remember seeing the screenshots going around on Twitter and I thought they were like you know when people like doctor the caption to like make it political I thought it was like that but too, so it's too. an <laughs> it's an episode where someone who's like friends with their parents, right? Is like a a supermarket owner. And then the workers go on strike. And then the supermarket owner is like, we're looking for some people to basically scab, like to cover the shifts of the strikers. And then the twins get like, take the jobs, right? And then as they're like on shift and like like having different experiences on the job, they're like, I can't remember what it is specifically that they want to change, but they're like, this place actually doesn't have very good workers rights like we we want to change things. Um, and then they're like, "Oh, we need to unionize," <laughs> and then they like go and try and join the strikers, and the strikers are like, "No, like you're scabs. We <laughs> we don't want you involved." And there's just like all these lines that are like really um really funny and and smart that come from from the mum in the show. Um, about, She's like, this is a pro-union household
0: Yeah, I was and about this to say, Yeah, she says so many good things She says like, it's this is a pro-union household Or like, you go and work for him You'll find out what it's like to be in a non-union <laughs> job It's like... <laughs> And it's like those were the messages I needed. Do you know
1: what I mean? Like I think it's kind of funny when when you see this kind of like overt political stuff in kids shows, and you see it now, like people being like, I don't know, you know, those like books that are like for two year olds that are like, I saw one the other week that was an alphabetical book, and it had like U is for Union, <laughs> and people kind of joke about how kids can't absorb these messages or understand them. But I think a lot of these shows. Do have the capacity to like fundamentally shape your values and your understandings of things? And like, even if you don't necessarily know what a union is or you've never had a job because like you're six years old, like the concept of collective action and getting together and, and being stronger in greater numbers. Like that's something that you can understand.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I also think what's really cool about the way that sister-sister seems to deal with problems is they often sort things out for themselves. Like, they tend to be, like, helping each other. Or there's a later episode when um, Tia's not getting paid the same as a colleague because uh, Mm. he's a man. And I'm pretty sure, like, Tamara just comes to the work and, like, has a go at the boss for her sister. And it's like they do seem to resolve things together and they resolve things in a group. And it's got that kind of, like, sense of community in the noughties it felt a lot more like people were getting saved all the time yeah yeah I think that's right
1: like often like saved by like the adults or the teachers or the parents who bestow the ultimate message but I feel like there are a few storylines in Sister Sister where they actually get away with things and like resolve them amongst themselves before the adults find out and I'm conscious that I haven't um I kind of like hinted to some of the economic reasonings behind the sitcom boom but I don't know if, if you want me to like go into more detail about that.
0: Oh yeah, please do. Because I think
1: it's quite interesting because I heard like a few journalists and like um, academics describe this phenomenon as sort of like a, um, a form of TV gentrification. What happened? Because basically, so as I mentioned, like the Cosby show got really big in 1984. And apparently that was not a show that was expected to be as well received and widely watched as it was. And basically after that happened, TV networks sort of started to cotton on to the fact that there was this big untapped black audience base, um, that was just like ready to watch black, black sitcoms. Um, and they basically decided that it would be a really good business model to like start out with these black audiences. Um, and so basically small networks. This became like a very common business plan for them. So Fox, I think is like the clearest example, which is obviously owned by Rupert Murdoch. Mm. Um, when that was launching in 1990, oh no, sorry, when Fox was launching in the 80s, their model was basically to do all of these black sitcoms that would get really wide audience bases and kind of prove their legitimacy and commercial viability. Um in the TV market. And so once Fox had kind of established itself with black sitcoms and be, been seen as credible um, in the TV sort of space, they, in 1994, decided to just axe like loads and loads of their black sitcoms all at once. Um, and then what they called, and I think this is like a really, um, really transparent and kind of like disgusting <laughs> um Like revelation, but it's what they call in the industry like trading up to a different audience. So they decided that they wanted to trade up to um, specifically white men aged 18 to 34, who were seen as um, an audience that had more buying power. So Then when they got rid of um, all of their black sitcoms, they started introducing more shows. Like I think the the most prominent example was something called the world's widest, wildest police videos, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) which was basically supposed to be symbolic and emblematic of this. um, Like we're going for this much younger, primarily white um, and male audience, which ironically was, was, capitalizing on racist policing um and then that that became basically the blueprint for what a lot of other american networks did so like the wb and upn and a lot of other small networks basically decided to do what fox did um which involved launching all of these black black sitcoms and then planning like it was part of their plan to axe them um as soon as they had kind of proven that they were big hitters
0: oh and when you talk about it like that and when you know the history behind it it's it stops being like oh what happened to all those fun sitcoms we used to watch and it becomes like oh this is actually like a contrived kind of evil plan it's really it's quite upsetting Yeah, it's
1: really dark, especially like when a lot of the things like we're talking about today are like kids shows And these kind of like very fun and friendly looking shows And it it feels exploitative to the audiences who who love those shows But also like quite exploitative to the people, like the actors and everyone who participated in those shows And a lot of people like got their big breaks and stuff Um, And then like their shows were axed
0: Exactly, I mean look at Sister Sister, like it had so many famous people Appear in it Like Brittany Murphy RuPaul
1: <laughs> I remember being so surprised Watching that episode I was like
0: Is that RuPaul? I was like She looks terrible <laughs> yeah, Like this is before She had the make- makeup artist I think like, It's like, it quite surprising But yeah Loads of people Seem to have their careers Launched through those Kind of shows I mean Will Smith Obviously With Fresh Prince of Bel He became huge after that um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah It's insulting to the audience it's insulting to the actors it's also such a terrible plan as well because the idea that anyone will watch something dedicated to a white male audience but only black people will watch something about a black story or mm-hmm. you know and that's mm-hmm. it's proven to be so false and we see now with like shows that we all watch now like so that's not the case basically
1: yeah, it's not the case. It's not the case at all. But It's really interesting also to look at um, the viewing stats. Like, obviously it's like complicated when you bring stats in, because it's like some of the things we're talking about, like, you know, black shows probably were watched by a lot of white people and, Like the more like all white cast shows probably were watched by like pockets of black people. But if you look at the what happened to the viewing stats in like the 80s and 90s, it is quite interesting that like Friends and Seinfeld in the US were in the top five, like biggest shows. And everyone was talking about them like, you know, the most watched shows in America. Um, But they weren't in the top 70 for black audiences, mm. which I just think is like really fascinating. Like, and I think especially when we have these conversations now about how friends, everyone's like, I can't believe friends was, was so undiverse and wow. Some of those jokes and friends didn't age well, but I think that concept of something aging badly is predicated on the idea that we all thought it was great and fine at the time, mm. but actually friends really bombed with black audiences. Like it, it wasn't a show that was received well by our communities at the time. And there's this clip where the cast all went on um, Oprah in 1995, like right after the show launched Um, and they were doing their like first round of like promo and Oprah like makes a joke. On, on stage she's like um she's like oh maybe you could get a black friend like maybe maybe then I'll stop by which I think is really funny because it's a joke but it also communicates this idea that Oprah kind of knows that it's not a show for her <laughs> and a show that she wants to watch um and so yeah just it, it really does demonstrate that that even back then, a lot of, and I think this is the case for black people, but probably a lot of marginalised communities. Um, for example, like the queer community, um, everyone talks about how Friends were so homophobic, like how did we never realise? I think these these trends might be visible in, in a lot of other communities who were kind of victims of, of all of those jokes.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if, if there's polling figures out there or like viewer stats on... How Friends was received by queer audiences and stuff But I mean, yeah, you watch it now and it's so visible It's like, um, Ross and Joey, like, have a nap together And it's, like, the worst thing that could ever happen It's, oh my god, two men, like, touch shoulders Like, oh my god, disgusting How could gay people and queer people not have been, like, put off by that? It makes total sense
1: Yeah, (laughs) and it's, like, surprisingly prevalent Like, I don't know, I, I... now that Friends is on Netflix like sometimes I like put it on to go to sleep and stuff (laughs) and I'm like being attacked by this barrage of homophobia which like I don't know yeah it's like the the storyline where they have a nap but also like Joey and like the lipstick or like the man bag storyline um the like continual misgendering of Chandler's mom like um, all of this stuff (laughs) yeah really prevalent and and I think that although like you say we don't have the stats on all of this and a lot of this stuff hasn't been um kind of like archived and 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 written down but i do think like we can sometimes erase the fact that a lot of marginalized communities had issues with um like bad representation actually when these things came out like for example ali g um oh
0: the whole no, Sasha Baron Cohen thing. I'm such, I'm such a Sasha Baron Cohen hater. I always, <laughs> even as a child, I was always like, I don't get it. I don't get it.
1: Right, right, yeah. I wrote a piece about the new Borat because I was really confused because I kind of like, I I knew the like Borat jokes and stuff when I was like a teenager. Like all the boys were obsessed oh, with yes, it, but it. I didn't really realize a lot of critics, especially like liberal critics, think that Borat is really smart and good. <laughs> And I was really confused when I watched the second one and I was like looking at the reviews and I was like, this has been amazingly reviewed. Like, I just don't understand. Um, but yeah, in when when Ali G came out, like black people protested outside the cinema and that was in like the early 2000s. And I think it's just like quite funny and interesting how you get this, this idea from the right That's like, you know, woke culture or PC culture or whatever they want to call it um, is a new thing when actually people have always been mad about these sorts of representations. Um, It's just like our voices are being heard more now, arguably.
0: Exactly. And I think it's because we weren't on social media, maybe we didn't see these arguments play out in the same way. Like if there were protesters at the cinema or protesters outside the premiere of a film or something. I'm actually thinking about um, what's that very first film that was ever made that's really racist and transphobic. What's it called? Birth of a Nation, Birth of a Nation. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's horrible. And um, they talk about it in that really good documentary, Disclosure, about um, trans uh, representation. And that was protested at the time, exactly like you say. And that was so long ago and it's like so this this kind of like opposition to the things that are openly racist openly transphobic homophobic that's that's not like a new woke trend that's <laughs> people have been out there like saying things things are bad for a really long time it's just maybe it, you didn't get like the retweets so
1: <laughs> yeah you didn't get the retweets and I think there is something about like um which audiences. Is- are seen to be profitable and I think that as time goes on and liberals increasingly want to be I think they care but they also want to be seen to care about like anti-racism and all of these things and like things will get cancelled online I think that more often people tend to pay a bit more attention to like reputational damage and boycotts and things like that this because I think they're starting to realize that it might actually like damage their profits do you know what I mean
0: definitely I also but then on the flip side of that I think some people do like to sort of make the stir in the media like poke the Bees' nest a little bit. Things like what was the night of the proms? We're gonna change the. They were gonna change oh, the, the lyrics, Britannia. Just, yeah. <laughs> some shows and some TV channels are kind of like, oh, if we put this, there's gonna be such a big Twitter storm, and we're gonna feed into this kind of like culture wars clash. I
1: was gonna say one good thing that's come about um, as a result of the internet and all of this stuff is like, when it comes to this black sitcom boom, one thing that I started thinking about a lot was how. Actually, it seems like it comes in cycles. Um, and there are a few academics who who basically have like more formally theorized around this idea that this boom and bust thing happens every 20 or so years. Um, and towards the tail end of like the 20 teens, you know, we started to see things like Atlanta and Insecure and Dear White People, Blackish, all of these shows, but especially blackish, I think, like is sort of the Some people call it like the black, all black kind of version of Modern Family or something like that. Um, But also it feels very similar to things like Sister, Sister um, and The Fresh Prince in terms of the fact that like it's like a family sitcom. Um, And yeah, so I feel like in recent years, especially also things like Insecure, which came from Issa Rae's like web series um, and kind of like producers cottoned on to the fact that her web series was getting really, really popular online. Like there's clearly a market for this. Let's make it into a show Um, kind of demonstrates how I think we're coming back into a sort of another boom, which has partly been fueled by the internet.
0: Now I think you're completely right And I was going to mention Insecure actually Which I really want to watch But I can't find a platform to watch it on I'm not sure if it's on Now TV or if it was taken off
1: Oh I don't know, yeah I don't know it's on something because my sister watches it, like yeah, like on the TV in a way that it it's not illegally streamed.
0: Okay, so she's not watching it illegally, <laughs> but I should be able to find a legal way to watch it. Yeah, and also it was interesting when um, Insecure came out because we did another episode. I did an episode with a friend about um, Girls by Lena Dunham, which has mm. obviously got so much to talk about, and Lena Dunham is such a flawed person. But, I really um,
1: want to rewatch it.
0: Oh, you should. I think you should. I think it's. Did you watch it when you were at uni? At uni, I watched it. Yeah,
1: oh, I w- yeah. I think I was like eighteen when I watched it. Mm-hmm. I think I might have been in like year thirteen or something like that. Mm,
0: yeah, um, me too. But um, in researching that episode, I came across a lot of stuff about Insecure that was basically saying people were constantly calling Insecure like the black version of Girls. <laughs> And so Isare was like, no, <laughs> this isn't, that's not what's going on here. <laughs> You've missed what's happened. Like I created a yeah. separate thing on a different side of the US, my own project, and you're just like mapping it onto some white person's experience. And like that's that's not what's gone on here. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that
1: is to do with like the mechanisms of the industry. Because I see people saying this in publishing as well. Like every time an anti-racist book comes out, everyone's like, it's the new why I'm no longer talking to white people about race and often I think even Rennie Edo-Lodge like the author said it herself like it's like you don't have to you don't have to use that book as like the um the kind of like I don't know the reference point for everything that comes afterwards but I think part of that is like about selling it they're like you'll love this if
0: Mm, yeah, you watch it's like this. it's like people also bought kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, on Amazon or whatever. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I think it must just be frustrating if you've come come to something that you've worked on really hard, and people are like it's this, but for this. Yeah, because also it's like one of the main
1: criticisms of girls was like. How undiverse it was (laughs) So then to be like Here's the black I don't know It doesn't neatly map onto Like a black version of
0: it No it really doesn't It really doesn't And I think Ooh that's something I was going to say actually It's interesting with Girls Which came out in like twenty. 14 or something um that it was instantly hammered for being so white and set in new york and then you do compare that to something like friends which went for 10 years or something with maybe one black character um Mm. what do you think of that kind of like arc in public opinion do you think do you think that shows progress or do you think it's a bit naff
1: oh in terms of people people
0: now criticize it
1: yeah yeah May, yeah, maybe it does. It's really hard. I often find conversations about progress really hard because, like I'm very cynical about this idea of like there's been like a linear progression where everything's got better and better because like even like with this sitcom boom thing, I think so many things go in cycles. but I think I wonder whether it's just like people's criticisms of these things. um, like I've said before, kind of are more likely to be heard now because of just, like, social media and stuff like this. Like, I know a lot of that conversation around girls happened on Twitter, like, back in the day. And I wonder if, yeah, I think these, like, platforms have allowed these criticisms to basically be a bit louder, um, which is, in some ways, a form of progress, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that is a form form of progress. But, again, it's the fact that the show's, without any Black characters or people of colour, keep getting commissioned. And mm. they make it all the way to having a whole first series and no mm. one says anything. And then it's only on the Twitter backlash that they're like, oh, yeah, we should probably get someone in. And she gets Donald Glover in in the second <laughs>
1: It's like in the first episode, she's like making out with him on the couch. I remember watching that and being like, wow, she really heard what people said. But also she really she really wrote it into the script that she was going to be making out with Donald Glover.
0: Like, imagine doing that and being like okay fine I'll get something I'll make out with him sure if I have to I'll take the hit
1: yeah but I think that that that's a really good point What you say about like the number of like boardrooms and like people who were involved because I think not to be like in defense of Lena Dunham and I'm sure you covered some of this as well but like Ultimately, Lena Dunham was what, something like 23 when she wrote that show. Mm. And like, we shouldn't be in a position where a 23-year-old with probably a very blinkered worldview who has only like has like a certain group of friends and a certain experience of New York can write a show like that, and no one else involved in the entire apparatus of the creation of that show like says anything either right like I feel like sometimes we have this tendency to like isolate one person as the problem when actually like there was so many people that allowed that show to be made in the way that it was made and like it's symptomatic of an industry problem right not just like a Lena Dunham
0: problem Exactly, yeah, and I totally agree with that. And also it just shows that it doesn't matter if you have, like, a woman writer or, like, you have the show that's meant, supposed to be really progressive, which is what Girls was, it can still be, like, deeply flawed if actually the mechanics of the industry are still racist and they're still skewed towards people who are, like, very wealthy, which is, like, what Lena Dunham is. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, yeah, it's not going to solve the problem. Exactly. Exactly. And I was actually, do you know who wrote or made Sister Sister or any of these Black sitcoms? Like, were they kind of created by Black um, writers as well? Yeah, I
1: think a lot of them had, like, majority Black writers' rooms. Like, I don't know the stats for, like, each show off the top of my head, but it is something that I looked into because I was also curious about it, Um, which I think shows. Like, I think you can tell that sometimes, there are times in Sister Sister where I'm like, I feel like they wanted to be, they potentially wanted to be more political than they were able to be about certain things, um, which is probably just like, also part of like network television. Um, But you can still tell like there's a storyline where one of the twins is like visited by, um, I think it's like Malcolm X and like MLK and like these different like historical figures and stuff. And I'm like, I feel like you can kind of tell that it was written by black people even though there were certain limitations that they had to work within
0: is that in a dream or something that she's yeah <laughs> yeah it's like a it's like a fever dream thing I
1: can't remember the exact plot of it but it's like the the messages like the moral messages of the episode are brought to her I think she might be doing like a history project or something and they're like brought to her by the echoey voices of, of these historical figures
0: I love that. Definitely in the union episode as well. Um, uh, What's the mum's name? Lisa. Lisa, yeah. Yeah, Lisa's just being like, you know, and they're just talking about the supermarket, and then she's like, "And Rosa Parks did this." Like, she instantly like invokes civil rights movement, like straight away. It's just, and that so fits in with her character of like always being the one to kind of like exaggerate a situation, and I just I love that. I thought it was so great. Yeah, and I think it's it's really
1: good because like I mean you can tell the difference between writing that has been written by. marginalized group that it's about and writing that that has not like I don't know if you've seen any of the criticisms going around about that like Ginny and Georgina show
0: oh I really want to watch it because it's kind of like a Gilmore Girlsy vibe right because yeah and actually is like they reference sort of Gilmore Girls themes um yeah not just like the hmm answer to Gilmore Girls (laughs) um (laughs) yeah yeah I I haven't watched it but I will do I really wanted to watch it Um, and maybe I'm
1: like, I shouldn't be criticizing it because I haven't watched it yet. But there was that clip going around on Twitter that was like, there's a scene where these two mixed race couple, these two mixed race people are having like um, an argument about like racial identity. And this guy is like this girl who's half black. He's like, I've never seen you like pound back jerk chicken or something like that and he's like you're he like he's like oh you need to work on your rapping because your bars see something like your bars ain't so fresh or something like that and everyone was just sharing it like this is violence like (laughs) you can tell that this was not written by a person of color (laughs) Because we would never do that
0: It's literally like Someone's gone to their notepad And been like Hmm What is black? <laughs> and then like, It's like, Literally This is embarrassing For you And everyone else Literally Yeah I, I would quite like To watch that The other one with um, Which people complain about Which like, maybe was in your article I can't remember Was um, like Winston's character In New Girl just, Oh like, yeah He's just like The most like <laughs> He really seems out of place In that show I think And that for me is Like it always comes to mind as an example of like a black character that really seems written by a white person.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. They, they pop up all over the place. There's one, um, Oh, is it like not another teen movie or something like that? One of those parody movies that is probably really awful in hindsight from the noughties, like does a a ongoing joke about it, where there's like a black character who's supposed to be like the token black friend and like the only lines he says are like, damn shit. And that is whack. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no matter what happens, like that's just what he chimes in with. Um... But it's, def- it's definitely a thing
0: <laughs> Yeah And that's what I liked In Sister Sister as well Is that um They kind of have Like a token white friend Which is great yeah. Um Like it's Brittany Murphy In like the first couple The first season I think And she's yeah. kind of a bit Like overly emotional And like a little bit annoying And then in the um Later series They have a white friend Called Beth Which is just great Like great name Um <laughs> And she's just a mess Like such a Like a weird Kind of like Hyper anxious Strange Girl, um, and I just thought that was great. I was like, Yeah, have the token white character and make, make like take the piss out of them a bit because, like, God, it's been done to black characters for so long. So,
1: yeah, I love that. I love that.
0: Was there anything re watching Sister Sister you thought didn't age well? I think it's not necessarily something that I think didn't
1: age well, although I'm sure there are things like that in the show that don't come to mind now. But there was one thing that I thought was. An interesting thing happening in the show That was then kind of just like abandoned Which is like the class dynamic Between the two sisters Because like Tia is from a much more Working class neighbourhood Like she's grown up um, with like a single mother um, And Tamara has had this like Very middle-class upbringing in this huge house with this much I don't know what what language like Americans would use but like a much posher like father um and like I think in the first episode there's sort of like comments like Ray goes to Lisa's house and is like making comments about the neighborhood and how it's like dangerous and this sort of stuff and she makes like comments and jokes about him because he ends up being her landlord and all of this kind of stuff but then it kind of disappears as it goes on and I remember thinking yeah it's not that it hasn't aged well but I feel like now I would hope or it would be interesting if like if that show were made now if they kind of dug into those differences because surely if you were twins separated at birth um from very different classes and then came together there might be like tensions or differences or just things that would come up or that you would talk about um but they kind of just just leave it untouched
0: yeah I I did think that as well like he does he does when he first comes to Lisa's apartment he's kind of like scared to be in that neighborhood and then instantly they all live together in the house and they're all best friends and they all share all of their (laughs) friends in life and so they definitely hugely gloss over that don't they but I guess it is a comedy at the end of the day and it it probably wasn't the place to have like a real like in-depth analysis of class differences
1: (laughs) yeah and often with these shows like they're also given the limitations of like within the industry people be like oh you're doing race or like you know you're like taking on or pushing the boundaries in this way like you can't do it in all of these other ways which obviously is bullshit but that's like often the very like two-dimensional limitations that that people are faced with in the industry
0: yeah that makes sense that makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense And <laughs> um, the final, <laughs> final thing I did want to ask you actually is um Tia or Tamara if you had to choose which one would you be?
1: I think I am a Tia because I always really related to her in that, you know how her mum is like, she's like very fun and very like spunky and outgoing and like, I don't know, like wears all these like amazing clothes and there's like a dressmaker and all this stuff. Like she really reminds me of my mum and then conversely Tia is the one who's really sensible and really studious and really responsible and she kind of like balances out her mum like there are a lot of situations where she's like I'm gonna be the grown-up because like my mum's like much more like fun and like easygoing and that's like very much (laughs) I think what I was like and our dynamic was like when I was a kid like my mum's really outgoing and fun and silly and I'm When I was younger, especially, it was like very head down, very studious.
0: I think I'm probably more of a Tia in the sense that I'm quite studious and definitely care a lot about doing well at school and stuff. Um, And then Tamara is just like, oh, algebra? What's that? (laughs) Which was never me. I really cared loads about algebra. About algebra. (laughs) Even if I didn't know what was going on, I cared. And that's our show! Before we go, I wanted to say thank you so much to Misha fraser Powell, for coming on to the show. You can find her on Twitter at Misha underscore Fraser, and you can find her uh, state of the arts column in The Independent. I also wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who's given me great feedback on the first episode. It's so lovely to hear. It fills me like with so much joy. If you did enjoy that episode or this one they're not mutually exclusive you can enjoy both please do leave us a review on apple podcast as always you can find us on twitter and instagram at tv Me pod on twitter or at tv Changed me on instagram this show was produced by me beth watson edited by me and all music was made by the beautiful musical mastermind who is iora and i think that's everything cheers babes Bye.